Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I need you. This is an amazing passage that you have given Luke the grace to write down, and I pray that I handle it with the reverence and the seriousness it deserves. Open up our hearts, open up our spiritual eyes that we may see what it is you want to teach us from your transfiguration, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so how many people here have ever really wanted to hear from God? You needed advice, you needed hope, you needed healing, and maybe you go walking out in the wilderness and you scream, where are you? Say something to me, anything, I'll do it. If you're that kind of person or you've been in that kind of place, then, then I understand, because I have as well. And so often we're looking for a voice, something that will just help us be assured that God is listening, that he knows, that he cares, that he loves, and that he's got the whole thing under control somehow, even though it feels like life is spinning out of control for us. We're going to read about a passage in the Gospel of Luke where, maybe surprisingly, three disciples are talked to by God the Father himself. They get the words that maybe they've always longed to hear. But I think those words are timeless. I think those words are not just for them. I think they're for us today. And so we're going to delve in to the Gospel of Luke, the Transfiguration passage. Now, just so you know, this passage begins directly after the passage that Jesse Heilman talked about a couple of weeks ago. Jesus was with his disciples. He was talking about the kingdom of God. They had that whole bit about who do people say that I am. And Jesus had set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem, talking about the things that were to come for him when he got there. But, of course, they didn't understand. Which, honestly, I, I have a lot of compassion for the disciples. We kind of look at them as dunces. Uh, they never got what Jesus was saying. But really, if I were with Jesus, I would never know when he's talking about literal things or figurative things, whether he's talking metaphorically or not. I wouldn't know. Okay, so we're talking about bread. Does he mean real bread, or does he mean some kind of leaven of the Pharisees this time? I'm not sure what he's talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? I would be confused. So just after that passage where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, you heard Jesse get really excited about the kingdom of God. This happens about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men 
Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now I'm going to go back through this passage. We'll go back to the beginning, to verse 28. And I'm just going to take it verse by verse for a while because I think this is a weird passage. And it needs some explanation. So the transfiguration, that's how this is normally termed, is recorded in a couple of Gospels as well. But Luke is the only one who really tells us about Jesus praying here on the mountain. And that's how we know he's in deliberate contact with the heavenly world. And I'm thinking that maybe the uh, story is meant to show how his disciples' eyes were opened to see what kind of thing happened when Jesus was communing with his Father. Because Jesus went off by himself a lot and didn't take them. But he took them on a few occasions, this being one of them. And they get a chance to see what happens when Jesus is praying to his Father. So, as Jesus is letting them in on his private prayer life, he invites them to pray as well. He does this in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, you know, it seems because either the mountain was really high and they were really tired, they got really sleepy. But whenever Jesus invites us to come with him to pray, he's there. He's praying. I don't know if you have read this in your Bibles, but the Gospels tell us and the Epistles tell us that Jesus is now in heaven praying as our high priest. That's what he does. One of the things he does in heaven is pray for us. And so whenever we're invited to prayer, we're actually not being invited to prayer alone. We're being invited to pray with Jesus. Jesus himself said, when you pray in my name, then these things will happen. When you pray in my character, when you pray in line with my will, these things will happen. How do we know what's in line with his will? It's because what he's praying is what he wants us to pray. And so we're being invited, just like the disciples, on a daily basis to enter into prayer, not by ourselves, but with Jesus there. And I think that's amazing. That's just the first verse. Verse number two, uh, two, verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Frederick Buechner, the uh, great author, says this in his book, Beyond Words. It was Jesus of Nazareth, all right, the man they tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brothers they knew. The one they'd seen as hungry, the one they'd seen as tired, footsore as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the Christ, in his glory. 
It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire with it, they were almost blinded. If you read any kind of uh, Eastern Orthodox commentary on this passage, and this is what I love about Greek Orthodoxy, I mean, they really tap into the mystery that is Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you say your prayers, uh, you will do your sign of the cross, and when you put these two fingers into the palm of your hand, you are saying that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. This is a symbol for the Trinity, and then these two come into your palm, meaning Jesus is fully human and fully divine. The Orthodox Christians are intimately aware every time they cross themselves that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And they think of this transfiguration not so much as Jesus changing, but rather the disciples' eyes are opened to a new spectrum of light, and they can see what's already been there all the time. It's like one of those Star Trek movies where the aliens, like, take their skin off, you know, and this bright light starts shining, you know, from inside. It's always been there. Jesus is divine. He's God in human form. And we get a chance to see that divinity when their eyes are changed and they're open to a spectrum of light that they don't normally see. This is like a break from all the madness of the world for them. I mean, imagine, you're just tromping day after day, doing the ministry stuff, feeding people, healing people, blah, blah, blah. Every single day, listen to Jesus preach, and then all of a sudden, you have this transcendent moment. Even, B even Buechner says that every now and then, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive transfigures the human face that it's almost beyond bearing. I think moms know this as their children are being born. I mean, think about you being born. Your mom had just been through hours and hours of labor. I know this because Mary's Explain this to me. She said, that moment when my kids were born and I looked at their faces, I was like in another world. Now, Mary had all four pregnancies and all four labor and deliveries without any kind of extra drugs. I mean, they're all natural births. And she's saying, I was transported. There was something. I looked at my child and I was seeing a bit of heaven, a bit of God. There's something unique about that moment for Mary. And the day that you were born, even if your mom didn't see that in your face, God saw that in your face. Because there's something going on that's not mortal. It's immortal. C.S. Lewis says that uh, you've never met a mere mortal. He said nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals with whom we joke, whom we marry, whom we snub, whom we exploit. 
there is something every now and then when you're looking in the face of maybe your loved one, maybe an aging parent on their deathbed. Maybe it's just walking down the street and you see somebody's face for just a moment and you see beyond your natural senses. You see into the wonder and the beauty that is that person. Now imagine that sight with Jesus, the God-man. It would be something like what Luke is describing. His face just changes. His clothes become dazzling white like lightning. But that's not all. Verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appear in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Now, just for historical reference, Moses had died 1,500 years before this moment. Elijah left the earth about 900 years before this time. Moses was the lawgiver. I hope you know the story of Moses a bit. He was the one that uh, took the children of Israel and freed them from the slavery in Egypt, went up to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments from God, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He's known as the lawgiver. Moses actually had some interactions with God on a mountaintop where his face would reflect the light of God so much so that he had to wear a veil when he came down. So Moses has been in this kind of situation before. Elijah was the prophet, the great prophet, the one who had taken on hundreds of false prophets and who would call down fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice and prove to Israel that there is one true God, not all these false gods. Elijah who actually, according to biblical record, didn't really die as we know death. Elijah was standing there talking to his protege, Elisha, who was to be prophet after him. As Elijah's standing there, the heavens open up in a chariot of fire. It's not just a movie title, folks. A chariot and horses of flame descend from the clouds, pick up Elijah in the chariot, and then take him bodily to heaven. And as he goes off into heaven, his cloak falls off, his mantle falls off, and I just see it in my mind. It just kind of wafts down and lands on top of Elisha, who becomes the prophet in his place. So Elijah never really dies. So who is talking with Jesus on the mountaintop? It is Moses, the lawgiver. It is Elijah, the prophet. The law and the prophets. All the Old Testament, all the books of the Bible at this point are coming together and they are pointing toward Jesus. It is Moses who represents those who have died. And Elijah who represents those who are still alive. And maybe even those who will just be translated when Jesus comes back and never see death. And they're talking about what was in the past. 
and what is to come in the future. Moses looks, looks toward the past. Elijah looks toward the future. I was doing some, um, some study for this sermon. And I want to talk to you about verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure. Now, the word departure here in the Greek is the word exodus. It just means exit. I mean, obviously it was used for death, but it has connotations that go beyond death. I mean, exit, exodus is the word, if you're going down the highway in Greece, and there's, you know, you know, exodus, anna, and then there was exit one. It's right there. That's how you get off. So they're talking about Jesus' departure from this earthly stage of his life. Not just about his death, but about his death and his resurrection. And as I was studying for this sermon, came across an old, old sermon uh, from W.A. Criswell, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And Criswell, in great Baptist preacher style, imagines a conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And this is what he said. Moses could have said to Jesus, Lord, I have come to talk to you about your death. For the law requires the death of the substitute for the sinner. The law says it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Leviticus 17.11 the law says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22 And Lord Jesus, every ceremony, every type, every sacrifice, every altar call in the old covenant pointed to Thee. And without Thy death, Lord, there is no forgiveness for our sins. And I am here only in the promise of Thy death. And Criswell goes on. And I can hear Elijah as he spake to Jesus. And he represents the prophets. And you could have said, as I think of it in my mind, Elijah says, Lord, I've come to speak to you about your death. For all of the prophets have said that the Son of God must be offered up for the atonement of sins of the people. All we like sheep have gone astray, the prophets say. And the Lord has laid on you the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. By your stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. Lord, you must die if we are to be saved. And I am here only because of the promise of your death. Jesus is the salvation for Moses and for Elijah. And Jesus is about to enter into the most difficult part of his earthly ministry, his trek toward Jerusalem, toward crucifixion, towards that atonement death. And here you have two of the greatest figures from the Old Testament in Criswell's minds begging him and encouraging him to go on and continue to do that because their eternal destinies depend upon it. Same as mine, same as yours. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, 
they saw his glory in the two men standing with him. Now, very often the gospel writers use the disciples' sleepiness as a literary device to indicate the slowness of the disciples to understand what is going on. Which I appreciate, because I feel like I am slow to understand. As much as Jesse makes fun of the Apostle Peter, I resemble the Apostle Peter. It gives you an idea about our working relationship. But sometimes in the course of your Christian life, it feels like God does something to wake you up. And it could be a moment of pain. It could be a moment of beauty. It could be uh, a startling something you didn't expect. It could be a spiritual high. You don't know. But sometimes God does these things to rouse us and rouse our spirits because we've been kind of sleepwalking through life for a little bit too long. For some people, these kind of things happen when you're on a walk out in the mountains and you come over a ridge and you look down into a valley and there's mist and there's water and there's snow-capped peaks and you just your breath is taken away. And for a moment, it's like, whoa, God is amazing. Sometimes it could be just looking at a little tiny flower on the side of the path or a dandelion growing through the stone of a parking lot and you go, whoa, God is amazing. So God gives us these kinds of moments to wake us up. And so I'm just asking, what kind of moments have there been for you? I think you probably all had them or you wouldn't be here. And those are amazing moments. We wish we could have them all the time. And so does Peter. Because in verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Now, if I were Peter and I got to heaven and I saw Luke, I'd probably say, Luke, really? You had to put that in there? Like... I don't make fun of, I don't, I, I don't put my foot in my mouth enough, all without any help. You've got to point it out to people. Some folks are verbal processors. I'm one. Don't pay attention to half of what I say. Because I'm just thinking out loud. Other people go away sit by themselves, figure out exactly what it is they're feeling and thinking, and then tell you. You can take that to the bank. Peter is for all of us idiots who think out loud. So Peter misunderstands the significance of the situation, but it's still an awesome situation, and he wants to keep it going. It's kind of like your, your last night at Christian summer camp. You guys ever been to that last talk, that last night? And the speaker gets up and he says something like, or she says something like, like, you're on the mountaintop. The air is clear. You can hear the voice of God very well. 
But tomorrow, you'll pack up and you'll leave this mountain. You'll go down into the valley where the air is thick and the voice of God is muffled. It can't always be like this, the speaker says. You can't continue this high. you got to go and you got to live your life as you normally would. God will bring you back to these kind of things every now and then when you need them, but you can't stay in the spiritual high, which is where we all want to be. But we know people like this. Or we have people in our lives who appear to always be in a spiritual high, and we think they're crazy. Do we not? Like, oh, man. She is so up. She was so high. She is so excited. She is so charismatic. Like, I would hate to see her when the lights go out. You know, when, when things get dark, because it's got to be really, really dark to recharge those batteries. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't want us to ever come across these transcendent moments and try and hold on to them like one would hold on to a piece of fruit and say, I'm never going to let go of this fruit. It's so good. Because what's going to happen is that fruit is going to start to rot in the middle of your grip. And pretty soon it will be oozing out down around your knuckles and down your arm, and it's going to stink. Peter wants to keep this going. Peter wants to make this experience a reservoir. Let's just store this all right here. Never let it get out. And Jesus, though, wants to make it a river. Look, we're going to go down the mountain. You're going to remember this later on. This is going to come in handy. But I want you to use this for the refreshment of other people, not just for yourself. We have that problem sometime in church. My little group of friends, my little wonderful charismatic experience, I just want to keep it all right here when God wants us to give it away. Beyond that, putting three shelters up for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus actually puts them all on the same level. And Jesus was not about to have that. Because Moses and Elijah knew why they were there, to worship the Lord of glory. So, let's go on to verse 34. While Peter was speaking, while he's speaking, this is, I love this, God interrupts. This is awesome. <laughs> if you're talking and God interrupts, shut the hell up. That's all I got to say. <laughs> right then. While he was speaking, <laughs> a cloud appeared and covered them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Like, uh-oh, the glory of the Lord is descending. God comes in a cloud in the Old Testament. Jesus comes on the clouds at the end, at the apocalypse. Daniel, the great prophet, saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Clouds? Hint number one, that God is appearing. And verse 35, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves 
and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So the voice speaking from the cloud is the voice of God the Father himself. This is the same voice that had spoken out loud when Jesus was being baptized. The focus is on Jesus. And God the Father is redirecting the disciples to focus on Jesus. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And when the cloud lifts, Jesus is there alone with his disciples. They have seen him a bit for who he really is. And they know, I would think, that things are different now. We have seen beyond all other proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah that was revealed to him in the darkness, down in the valley. But here he had seen it clear on the mountaintop. And once you see Jesus for who he really is, you know, your life is never the same. Let me put it this way. You cannot lose, ultimately, once you've seen Jesus for who he is in your life. doesn't matter. You lose your job. Eternal security is yours in Christ. You fall. You sin. You walk away from the Lord. God is still God. You know that. <laughs> Honestly, backslidden Christians are the, the most uh, frustrated, sad people I've ever met. Because they know in the back of their minds that God is still God, that he's got them, that he's going to pursue them, that, that Jesus is real. And they make miserable sinners once they've known this. You know, they thought, I'll go back and have a good time. And they find out, oh, this sucks. Some of you, I know your stories, and you know this from personal experience. I mean, once you are... In the presence of God, once God reveals himself to you, nothing ever goes back and stays the same. You can risk everything for Jesus. You can risk falling in love because Jesus has got your back. You can risk moving to a new city. You can risk trying a new job. You can risk staying in the same job that you hate. Because what? Because Jesus has got your back. You have seen the glory of the Lord. John writes about this particular transfiguration story when he's an old man in his gospel. He's writing the gospel of John. In the very first chapter, he says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. By this time, John had been exiled, boiled in oil, Alive. I mean, he'd gone through all sorts of persecutions. And he's going, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. I've seen the Lord. I know who he is, who he said he was. And then Peter, in Second Peter, his last letter, says this in the first chapter. We did not follow cleverly invented stories 
when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter, old, in prison, ready to go to the cross himself. It doesn't matter. I can go in peace, he's saying, right around this chapter, because I've seen the Lord. I didn't make this up. Now James, the third disciple, had no opportunity to write. James was the first of the disciples to be killed for his faith, from Herod Agrippa the first. And this is what I love about the economy of God. Jesus wanted him there anyway, even if he would never get a chance to write about it later on. Which leads me to believe that God wants his presence known to people, even if they're not going to be pastors, apostles, evangelists, teachers. That he is okay with revealing himself to every single person because he loves us. James, never got a chance to talk about it. So, like every preacher, I'm trying to find out what can we take away from this passage? What can, what can I grab onto uh, as a lesson for me that I didn't already figure out from reading this passage? It's pretty cool when God the Father gives you the theme for your sermon. But I shouldn't divert from it, should I? When God tells you the theme is this, this is my son. Listen to him. So my first point is this. Follow Jesus up the mountain. And here's the great thing. In a lot of world religions, uh, you get this picture of the wise sage sitting on top of the mountain waiting for you to ascend the summit where he can bestow upon you the wisdom you need for life. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus goes up the mountain with you. Jesus prays with you. Let's go together. If we stay close to Jesus, then we can have these experiences when we need them from time to time. Let's stay at least within earshot of his voice. How do you do that? Well, one way, I think, is to know what he said, right? If you're going to listen to Jesus, <laughs> then we better know what we're listening to. And so I figured this out. I did some research. And you can read through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in 44 days. If you read two chapters every day for 44 days, and then one chapter on the 45th day. In other words, by, what is this, May, June, by July, right? You could know everything Jesus said. 
all over again, refreshed in your memory. If you want that schedule, write to me at scumoftheearth.net. My email address is on the website, and I will send you a PDF of that schedule. But basically what it is this, is day one, two chapters of Matthew, day two, chapters three and four of Matthew. And it just goes through. You can figure it out, two chapters a day for 44 days. <laughs> the fifth, 45th one is one chapter. So why don't you do that with me? I'm, I'm just saying, I'm going to do this. If I'm going to listen to Jesus, then I need to know what he said. So let's follow him as he goes through the Gospels, all right? Two chapters a day, that's all you got to do. And then I thought about it some more, and I thought, okay, what does it really mean to listen biblically? And I thought, well, the first thing is to think about what he says. We're on number two. There we go. Think about what Jesus says. This is kind of listen part A. Think about what Jesus says. And when you approach the scriptures as you're reading, obviously you want to pray first, but but here's the deal. You can approach what Jesus said one of two ways, I think. You can approach the scriptures. You can approach what Jesus says either as a lawyer or as a lover. You can approach it as a lawyer or as a lover. Now, when your lover says something to you that you don't really want to hear or you don't like, how do you respond to what he or she has said? You think about it. You need to listen. You need to digest it and see if there's any truth there. I know this because I've been married for 37 years almost. And Mary is still telling me things I don't want to hear. Because if I approach those things like a lover, then I'm going to think about those things. And I'm going to consider them. I'm going to meditate on them. Do I really yell all the time? Really? Or am I just Greek? Which one is it? Because I don't think I'm yelling. But she says I am. So, what is it? Is it the tone of voice? See, we got to the stage in our marriage where it's not the volume, but it's the tone of voice. I know that's what she's saying. It's that little snarky attitude in my voice when I say something. It's that very commanding, distinct, like, this is the way it is tone. Now, I may not be yelling in my definition of the word yelling. But she says, you're yelling. And her definition is about tone. So I'm trying to listen to her like a lover listens to her, not like a lawyer. Because if a lawyer says something I don't like... I just go get another lawyer. <laughs> That's what you do. And let me just add this. It's not about what Jesus is not saying. No arguments from silence here. Okay? Jesus said plenty. I don't I don't I don't need to figure out what Jesus isn't saying and then figure out how to live that way. Because there's plenty that he does say that I'm not doing. <laughs> so let's just Let's just concentrate on what he has said, okay? And then the third thing, what 
would be to do what Jesus said. That's part B. In the Old Testament, very often you would hear these words, hear and obey. Hear the Lord and obey him. You really couldn't separate those two things. Moses said to the Israelites before his death, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Now was Moses saying, Yeah, just give him a fair hearing, then do whatever the hell you want. Of course he wasn't saying that. Listen to him is not only a command, it is a correction to the human tendency to substitute human opinion for divine revelation. That's what we do. We substitute human opinion for divine revelation all the time. We know what the Bible says. We know what God wants. Here's my opinion. As G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and find, found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So listening to Jesus Scripture, a number one way to listen to Jesus. But honestly, Jesus has spoken to me through trusted mentors and friends, pastors, through my wife, through some of you. One of the things that always kind of um, maybe scratch my head about the way Mary relates to Jesus. And she would always talk about how she really wanted Jesus to be so close that she could tell that he was enjoying her. And so when Mary's very, very close to Jesus, her experience is, I've been with Jesus, and I'm, you know what? He really enjoys having me around. He loves me. Mary can spend, actually, long periods of time alone with a devotional book or with the Bible, and she does every day. Now, that's always seemed rather odd to me. Maybe it's the fact that I'm the firstborn, and it's all about performance for me, you know, being a good boy, doing the right things. I always got attention for, for, for falling in line with what my parents wanted, unlike some of my siblings who got attention by, by doing whatever they wanted. <laughs> we were both seeking attention. We just did it in different ways. <laughs> And so I never really felt like God, you know, enjoyed me as much as Mary. So I hear God speaking through her. And we had this uh, Scottish team meeting just uh, this past week. And uh, one of the people was praying. I won't tell you who. And as this person was praying, I was being prayed for. And all of a sudden it was about, it was about joy, that I would experience joy. And it's kind of hitting me sideways, like, like, excuse me, like, I mean, you don't know me that well, and um, why could you pray that uh, I would have joy? Like, is God reading you my mail? What's going on here? 
But what I heard, repeated now, for the second time, Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, trying to get me to listen and say, you know what? We enjoy you. We like you. We don't just love you. We love you, but we also like you. You make us happy just by being you and all the stuff you do. And I thought, I need to listen to this. Because God is speaking to me. I need to listen. The Bible tells me God loves me. I usually just kind of gloss over that and keep going. Because, oh yeah, yeah, I know he loves me. But I think what God is trying to tell me is, Mike, I like you too. It's not about just your performance. It's not just because you're a good boy. Even though we both know you're not. <laughs> he tells me that too. And I'm glad because I'm fully known. This bit about listening to God. These words of God the Father are not just for these three disciples. They're for us today. God is speaking to us. There are these moments of transcendence, these transfiguration moments that will happen in our lives. Pay attention. Listen to what God is saying. Maybe you won't be on a mountaintop. Maybe you'll be in the basement of scum praying with a circle of people. Maybe you'll be in a mountain trail stopping and looking at a violet on the side of the path. But God is speaking. Let's listen. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's end with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the way that you have revealed yourself in these passages of Scripture. Help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to listen to what he says. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.